You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So, you know, Warhol's phrase that one day everyone will be famous for 15 minutes, I think over the last 10 years now you have to add to that and they expect it to happen in 15 minutes. Um, I think art requires cultivation and patience and... I mean, That's the voice of Shepard Fairey speaking uh, about John Van Hammersveld. You know, I've written a couple of uh, pieces talking about John's work, talking about the Hendrix image specifically. Um, I've also been interviewed a lot about my influences as an artist and um, specifically my favorite poster. And it's tough to pick a favorite, but it's all I always say it's, it's John Van Hammersfell's uh, Pinnacle Hendrix. Um, so uh, John has written about the history of the image and his connection to surf culture and psychedelic. Um, psychedelic art and rock and it's a very you know it's a very interesting you know convergence of different um, different people and experiences that you know led to a lot of the stuff he does so I have been um, excited about the opportunity to post some of that history on my website and and talk about talk about his work um, because I think that it's uh, it's different how things come together um, or came together before before the internet it was much more it was much more tribal and think you know organic um, and I, I think that uh, and people were um, maybe a little less impatient a little bit more committed to investing time in things that they felt were were valuable um, to them creatively whether it would be immediately commercially successful or not and I think that the fearlessness that goes with that actually made some of the things um, happen and become commercially successful that uh, you know someone that was being a little bit more calculated and impatient these days thinking okay I put it out on the internet it didn't stick in 15 minutes um, that might not happen now so I think it's really worthwhile studying studying how a lot of uh, the, this stuff evolved Studying how this stuff evolved is precisely what we endeavor to do here today. Welcome to Surf Splendor. My name is David Scales. Today we chat about the evolution of one man's career, about growing up surfing in Southern California, how designing the Endless Summer poster led to him working with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. He tells us about being headhunted by John Severson, skiing in Mammoth with Dora, and how all art is a derivative of destruction. It's a conversation with John Van Hammersveld right now on Surf Splendor.
I interview a lot of Mickey Munoz and these people, and when they talk about surfing, they describe it kind of as an art form, or I think he was talking about it as a dance, you know, which is an art form. And um, when you hear people analyze art, oftentimes you could take that exact same verbiage and apply it to a conversation about surfing. And I think that the parallels between the two, uh, surfing and other forms of art, artistic expression, is that there's this tension between a discipline and a freeform expression. And it's writing that tension that you're trying to live in. And surfers have it in a very fleeting experience, I think. They're always trying to capture that fleeting experience. But I think artists yourself probably have found a way to kind of live in that tension and to exercise the discipline, but still allow the free flowing kind of expression. Um, so that's kind of why I wanted to interview you. You know, right. I mean? so you're looking for an analogy of sorts. Then I, I'm not looking to it, it or for it. It just comes up oftentimes. Yes, you know? right. Well, you know, it's the centrifugal force, you know, of the of the backwash coming up, you know, and the force of this uh, this wave that's traveled from, uh, you know, the storm far, far away. Right. right. And and you're there, and you have to <clears throat> counter it by is the tide right, you know, for the fold as it folds over. Uh, um, and so it's, it's a time where you have to be there uh, for about 15 minutes, you know, and then it's over. Right. You know, it's a struggle one way or the other between the tides and between the people. Right. So the moment, you know, is that, uh, you know, it's the positioning and then it's the pose, which became so important and so uh, significant, you know, with the longboard. That you don't necessarily see with the uh, the new the newer surfer. You don't. And they're cut a different way. They're because of the uh, they're they're dragging themselves around in the water. You know, not gliding. Right. That they're built differently. You know. So and then it's more the, gymnastic, the, more like a skateboard. The board is built differently, or the surfer's physique. The surfer is, and the board. Yeah, the surfer's physique is built differently because yeah. they have to pull themselves with their arms around. Right. When paddling, you when you kneeled, you know, you had your whole body into it, and mm -hmm. so you were very long muscled, you know, because you had to use all all your muscles all the way up to stand up and to to uh, sit down and travel, you know, and and uh, paddle uh, prone or on the uh, or kneeling. Right. So it's a different body, yeah. and the pose was different, and <clears throat> and it, maybe it was a little more static at times for the positioning. You know, as the as the centrifugal force was coming up and the wave was folding over, the surfer had to had to strike a pose, yeah, and put that rail in, and 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 go and and um, and track or or um, what would be the word for it? Trim. Trim. The trimming was the whole thing. You know, yeah. bringing it up and then trimming and getting the speed. When um, today I I noticed that speed is there, the board is just like a little piece of something underneath them you know and they um and and they've struggled to get that board in at the last second you know and right. they're down the wave and then they pull up and they get back into the you know into the tube and they can stay back there they can regulate it because of the nature of the board it, it uh it's really controllable <clears throat> where right. where the long board would just take off and you'd have right. to stall all the time you're constantly stalling it seems just, I've never thought about it really, but as you're explaining it, it seems like back in the day, 50s, longboard, classic style of surfing, it was more 
the writer was almost trying to get out of the way and let the board and the wave almost express themselves and just be a writer um, and not leave too much of an imprint. It's very much opposite nowadays where it's all about um, aggression and forcing your imprint on the wave, you yeah. know, and, and so that's an interesting aesthetic difference between longboarding and shortboarding, I guess. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, so as Lance Carson would uh, build my surfboards in the 80s uh, in that transition, I couldn't, uh, because I was so tall, you know, and, yeah. and big, I couldn't ride a 6.6 or a 6.8 or something like that. It was just like a potato chip, right. you know. So I always was in a mid-range, you know, around 8.6 or something like that, mm -hmm. uh, pin tail. But, but built a paddle, you know, to yeah. get into the wave, you know, when the other ones, they would cut away all that, you know, and you were, you just had this little tip sticking out there. Yeah. It was all up to whether you could stay, have your chest there and get your feet there. Yeah. And then when you're on it, it was just like a squirrely thing at first, you know, I don't know how you could really control that. But, you know, watching our, um, what was the name, the uh, guy from the Venice real estate, um, a big burly character. Sarlo. Sarlo, yeah. yeah. Seeing Sarlo take care of everything in the 80s was amazing. Yeah. He was really good. I didn't realize you were getting boards from Lance Carson. I was wondering about who was she. Yeah. Did yeah. he make a lot of your boards or just? Yeah, in the 80s. Okay. I lived in Malibu and so, he, uh, and he uh, had a shop uh, or had a, a, a room that he was using in Topanga there. Mm -hmm. And so he would cut these boards for me. Cool. Where'd you grow up? Um, and where'd you grow up surfing? And how did you get into surfing when you were growing up? Well, you know, I, I moved, <clears throat> my parents moved to Palos Verdes, you know, in 1951 into a, a house there that my grandfather had built for us hmm. and um, in Lanata Bay. <clears throat> so we entered this sort of middle-class world. Um, my father was a, a victim of uh, polio, but had compensated himself. So he was able to, um, um, had crutches and, and, and drove a car with uh, hand controls and, wow. and worked as a scientist at uh, Northrop Aviation, okay. you know, in the age of flight. You know? sure. So everything was um, kind of started there, you know, as this new environment, you know, it was different from the East and everything. And going to uh, Malaga, Malaga Cove School, um, it had a big window on the right side, or on the left side, that looked out, um, at the sky, you know, and, and the uh, eucalyptus trees and the hillsides and the grass lawn and all that. And it was just like a beautiful day every day mm -hmm. with the clouds going by. And it was really hard to focus on the teacher in front in this sort of shadowed box, you know, and these 24 students. So the, um, the idea of being able to um, uh, think about another world was really interesting to me, you know, and uh, and so um, Phil Becker then was a neighbor. He lived like a, a probably a quarter of a mile away on uh, Dalton Road, and then across the way from him uh, on the corner of Bellis Verdes Drive North, and and uh, I don't know what the cross street was, but <clears throat> there was a little Spanish villa, one of the original ones that the Vanderlips had built there, that Jerry Eaton and Mike Eaton lived there, you know, so. Mike Eaton is like the surfboard baker, you know, uh, in, in the, as a legend in the present day. You know, his brother then um, was a surfer with uh, um, 
Phil Becker, mm -hmm. but didn't quite go down the same lane, you know, as, as Becker did. And so then Becker and Eaton, Jerry Eaton, they were like three years older. So there I was in Lanana Bay, and I had met them through um, a, a Weeblow, Weblow, Weblow, Weblow um, um, scout meeting. Oh, okay. And yeah, Phil's yeah. father was the de the uh, pack leader, you know. So <clears throat> through Bell, through the Boy Scouts, you know, we all kind of like met each other, and then the skateboards came. You know, the, uh, Becker had uh, run into uh, Becker had a relationship with Burns, who was connected to um, Ekstrom. And so Ekstrom and Burns had come up with these skateboards. And so we all kind of adapted to that and had a little skateboard group uh, at, the, uh, um, at the schools looking for like real uh, shiny cement um, sidewalks, you know, that right. didn't have any stones in them. And it's worth, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's worth noting that that was essentially the inventing of skateboarding, right? Yes. What, those, what Ekstrom was doing in San Diego and then... You guys here, that was the first four skateboards, probably. Yeah, well, someone who's doing the history always goes to Wind and Sea, and there was a key guy there that they, okay. they appoint as the beginning, you know. And, and then Wind and Sea and the gang there, you know, okay. with Ekstrom, that all kind of like completes itself, you know. Got it. And turns into a history there. You okay. Know? So, um, so Ekstrom uh, is like, you know, uh, right there, you know. Yeah. And then you were right here, yeah. one step behind, essentially. Right, right. So, um, as we progressed here with the skateboard, you know, uh, and we were, uh, they were, they were again older. They were, um, I was probably 11 and they were like 13. Um, as we got towards uh, 14, then um, I, I got my, I, I, um, I think I went to the Cove with uh, Phil and Jerry and, and there was a um, Tom Blake, um, 12 foot, you know, one of those beautiful uh, manufactured, um, uh, uh, paddleboard kind like of a things. hollow yeah hollow you know with a cork in the front or uh, not a not drain really a, cork, a, a drain uh, you know beautiful piece of brass right. you know hardware <laughs> and then the, the fin I think was hardware as, t uh, okay. as well yeah. yeah and so we would paddle that around the cove uh, not really doing any more than that in the tide pools with the uh, with these little um, sharks zooming around, you know, which are uh, never would bite you because they were um, vegetarians. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but it was the hauling of the board, like you know, uh, on these uh, kind of ambulance wheels. You know, right. going, going down the hill was easy. Going up the hill was terrible. You know. Yeah. But then we had to go up another hill up to Palisades Drive. Uh, um, south and and for another like half mile to jerry's house and then park it there you mm -hmm. know so that was one kind of event and and they had done that a number of times with their older friends and brother you know i somehow or another decided that uh i was going to get a surfboard and so <clears throat> my father had met uh um, a friend of his who who uh, my father's always trying to pawn me off to some other father <laughs> because of his disability you know yeah so um so this joe latour said he'd put in 25 dollars, you know and uh and so my father took that and he said okay so then he drove me up to um and my father drives me one you know kind of foggy morning up to to see the velsey store you know and uh <clears throat> and and that that was a piece of modern history that little, it was like a, um, 
uh, a real estate office that had been converted had two rooms, one to show the boards and the other to manufacture the boards. And it was like no bigger than this right wow. here. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I originally, you know, probably three months before, probably in June, I had been down to um, uh, dive and surf, which again was a building this size, two, two rooms the size of this, you know, with uh, Jacobs in the back yard area uh, with a uh, shaping, uh, shaping horses, you know, mm -hmm. and this big breakwater, these huge gigantic stones that went up that protected, you know, uh, the South Bay there, you know, from, from this, these huge uh, surf breaks. And this little tiny building, you know, right at the foot of it, you know, and then the high, and then the, the roadway where everybody would go by, and that was, and, and painted in letters there, it was like, um, dive and surf, you know. So, <clears throat> so we had that experience, and then I was guided, you know, to go to the Velzy thing. So the Velzy thing opens up, you know, and, and in this fog, there's this uh, 19, probably 52 Chevy truck, you know, green, you know, coming out of the fog and stops with a deer hanging over the front of the hood. And there's Velzy driving and there's Jacobs in the passenger seat. And then there's Bose, you know, over the window in the back, you know, and they jump out. And uh, my father's, uh, um, you know, gets out of the car and he's in his crutches and everything. And my, and Velzy says, so, you, you know, uh, were you you know, <clears throat> did you, did it happen in the war or the war? And my father said, no, you know, and, and Velzy just drops the subject. <laughs> and then he always wore these keys on the side of his uh, jeans, you know, and in uh, the hook there, you know, so when he walked it, there was always a jingle to it. Sure. You know? And so he, <clears throat> so he goes over to the front door of the thing and puts his key in there and opens it up, you know, and, and you look in there and you see all these, these long 10-foot boards, you know, with the fins at the bottom hanging out. So he takes the order on a little piece of paper, you know, what do you want, you know, and you give all the, your instructions and all that, and then, um, then that's the end of it. You, know, you disappear, right? So then when you come back uh, in August to pick up your board, um, you know, it, you know, it's the smell, you know, mm -hmm. it's the um, glistening quality to it. But he would, he would ask you first if you wanted a drawing on it, you know, in chalk that Harold Edgar would do. And, um, and Edgar was like a movie set uh, designer. Okay. Yeah, uh, who then had a glass shop that the boards were glassed at, he and his brother. So, um, the interesting part of the boards then is that mine had a, they just took the word hammer, my, you know, my nickname from Phil Becker, and they did a Tahitian two hammers crossed across this kind of a shield, you know. Um, and and, uh, and then, then Doyle's, uh, Mike Doyle's board was there with a big totem on it, you know, all the way down, big chalk drawing, you know. And that's where we all kind of started. That was hmm. the that was the center of it, you know. Uh, as much as Greg Knoll was uh, up on uh, uh, at his house at that time, or I think I met him when I was like, um, oh, uh, 12 or something like that. My father was interested in um, uh, the uh, f um, honeycomb foam systems, I guess, you know, as, as a forum to glass over and epoxy mm -hmm. and everything. And he, and, uh, and, uh, Noel had Noel, the way Noel had his thing worked out is that he had a way of skinning the board that, that had some kind of a, uh, a, a, a a rack and and something and a planer that could just like 
yeah. take care of part of it, you know? Right. Uh, where Belzey and, uh, and Jacobs, they were just hacking down, you know, and then getting with the finish, or, you know, the planer and then the finished planning. Right. So those surfboards were the beginning, you know, of a modern surfing generation. Yeah. These 13-year-olds, 12 and 13-year-olds, like, started this South Bay scene, you know? And and then there was and the generation you were with was a, was a, like a large populace, you know, right. where, but broken up into uh, surf um, kind of like gangs at the end of these different streets. You know? Yeah, in Palos Verdes. Palos Verdes. Yeah. yeah. So Palos Verdes didn't necessarily. We had Lanata Bay, but that was like only on big days. You sure. Know? And we had the Cove, which was slow. Yeah. But we had Torrance Beach, mm-hmm. and Torrance Beach had a nice uh, peak to it. Yeah. Or the random peaks at a certain kind of uh, on a west swell. Uh, when it went into south, everybody said, "Oh my God, here it comes!" You know. Yeah. yeah. And then we'd have to go north to Malibu. Sure. You mentioned the different streets in Palos Verdes as being almost different gangs. Um, gang has a negative connotation and a connotation with violence. Is that it? Is that implied in what you're saying, or um, because I? Well, you know, your gang was defensive, you know. Okay. To another gang, you know. But you were new to that break, you know. Well. It's, there was a localism. There know? was, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that's what it's known for, essentially. Yeah, it just wasn't at. violent. You talked about some of the artwork that was done on those Velzy boards. Um, can you tell me about kind of uh, when you, I don't know, first felt the influences of what would ultimately become your career path as an artist? As a graphic designer, you know my in my family, um, <clears throat> my mother is the artist, my father is the engineer, and my grandfather is the um, kind of patent scientist. Okay. So everyone drew what they were trying to explain. You know, so so the verbal conversation always had a little piece of paper out, and they were drawing, mm. you know, something. You know, so so in a way, you got to see what thinking and the transmittal of thinking, you know, through the hand and what went on the paper, you know, and then the style of the drawing, you know, that that you would learn to find a clarity or, you know, or, or a way of, of, of uh, being able to show it to someone and see what I'm talking about. Yeah. So you had perspective and shading and all those sorts of things going on. So as, as I went into high school, um, I was tested for uh, dyslexia which they didn't know anything about that. And dyslexia is like a spatial memory uh, where, you know, you see all the way back here, you know, on every subject, you know, and it's very hard to focus on someone talking right in front of you. Sure. And realizing that information is more important than this information. Mm -hmm. So so in the difficulty of that, um, uh, the spatial memory, you know, in a sense, got me through school, you know, being that I could have my dean of my high school uh, put me into two art classes uh, a day, you know, so I had two hours, I had a very good instructor. Mm. Um, so that developed me in that, that particular way. Now, <clears throat> at, on, on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, I was gone surfing. Mm. I wasn't connected to the school at all socially that way. Uh, so I was always a mystery, you know, but they knew me as an artist in that class and, and a gym or something like that. I was a good athlete. Okay. But I wouldn't, I didn't like team sports. So I, I, I was always individualizing myself to, to some particular sport. And one was swimming. 
art was art was a was something I was learning to do, which was physical. Um, but then it had to have ideas to it, thinking. And then I was over here surfing, you know, which which was physical, you know, and it had ideas in it, you know, and places to do it, you know, and and uh, reflections and different poses and almost a filmic kind of way of of looking at the world, you know, versus over here in the in the art world, is it's kind of like flat, yeah, um, and you're looking at uh, everything uh, as a as a shape, you know, or a, uh, a depth or something like that, you know, and and the content which is in it, you know, so plain air. Painting was, uh, you know, connected to surf in a way, and my mother did plein air uh, painting, you know. And so when people say, are you an artist, then uh, you're always accused of being a painter, right? Sure. <laughs> uh, uh, and possibly a, uh, um, uh, possibly a sculptor, you mm-hmm. know. And, and you would go to show, my mother would take me to shows at the L.A. County Museum, and I would see Du Buffet or something like that, you know. And... And I could realize that things could uh, that art could be applied to you know uh, uh, dimensional things. Okay. So, uh, but still, it was flat. Yeah. You know, and 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 so as I went from high school to um, to art center college of design, then all of a sudden my father is directing me, you know, into it as as a way of making a living, and and then this word design comes in you know which then brings the ge- geometrical solids into it and so then it becomes dimensional in a way and there's like these automobiles that are designed and these rooms and these places you know but yet you're looking at these flat images but you're looking into them they have depth to them hmm. so so the modern world is being explained to me you know at uh, 19 years old mm-hmm. John's father helped him secure a job at aerospace and defense technology company Northrop, where John designed and illustrated technical manuals. He was able to apply his drawing ability and gain on-the-job experience with magazine-style layout and graphic design. Meanwhile, John Severson had recently begun publishing Surfer Quarterly, which would become Surfer Magazine in San Clemente, about 60 miles to the south of Palos Verdes. One of the key contributors to Surfer Quarterly was cartoonist Rick Griffin, who also happened to be from Palos Verdes. While Severson's Surfer Magazine was Orange County-centric, Van Hammersfeld saw an opportunity to showcase the unique surf scene of Los Angeles's South Bay. So, Back in uh, Hollywood Riviera, where I was living, um, I had a, a bedroom there that uh, I could use, you know. And so I decided um, that that uh, seeing, let's say, uh, Rick Griffin's Murphy on the cover, you know, in 1961, you know, and and this sort of publication thing starting, I said, well, I should do a, a publication. I, you know, I, I I can do this, you know. Yeah. So I uh, got a hold of um, Granis and and uh, Warren Miller and and uh, Bing and Jacobs and all that and got this advertising and editorial. There's a woman downstairs in the apartment below who would do the writing, uh, you know, or the editing of the copy and all that. And then <clears throat> to get to pay for, the guy to pay for it was was Walt Phillips, who had a TV program, but um, he had a, uh, a metal plate in his head and took drugs, you know, to, <laughs> to whatever himself, you know. Yeah. 
And um, so he was a very irritable guy, you know, and he was big. He was bigger than I was. Sure. Uh, and, a, and a surfer, and he would always have these pictures of him in a big wave, you know. Um, so I got the publication done. I didn't think I could go on with him, you know. Surfing and, Illustrated is, is the name of the publication. Yeah. So I've invented this thing and, right. you know, the name and the thing. And all I've asked him to do is just pay for it yeah. uh, for a printer down the street to take care of it. You know, okay. A relationship that I had built through a poster that it had, that I'd done for Bing. Okay. And um, so in that, in, in that saga there, uh, uh, in the process of publishing it, Rick Griffin comes over. I meet him. I meet him at Torrance Beach, and and I say I'm doing this surfing publication. He says, Oh yeah, I, you know I'm doing this stuff. I'm doing these comic strips, you know, for for John Severson. You know, isn't this great? And I said, Yeah, terrific. Why don't you do some drawings for my publication? So he came to the studio, and uh, and we worked it all out, and he did the drawings and everything, and and then I published the magazine, and then he came again. You know, he came up and he said, John, you know, uh, Severson's really pissed off. You know. Uh, that I that I'm working with you on this and and he's like 17 you know I'm like 20 uh, yeah I'm 20 years old or yeah. three years apart you know um, so I said well let's resolve this somehow or another uh, Rick why don't you call him so he picks up the you know the old black telephone with the black cord to it you know and rah, 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 not speed dial no rotary yeah <laughs> And gets John on the phone, and, and then they pass, and then he passes the phone to me, and I say, "Well, hi, John, how are you?" And I says, "Well, I'd like to have a meeting with you, you know." And so this meeting is set up uh, at a Tahitian restaurant in, in um, Long Beach that so we're going to meet each other halfway, right? Okay. So I, I go to the meeting, you know, and here's this older man. He's like eight years older than I am, you know, and and. Uh, and you know Rick is like three years younger than I, you know, and and here's so, so here's someone who's ten years old exploiting this little fifteen-year-old, right? Right. Who's a part of this new society, you know, of, of of characters, and he's he's older than all of us, you know. So he his his way of looking at history is different, you know. Um, but he's in there with Hobie and and uh, and Grubby Clark and and. Uh, and Bruce Brown, you know, in the in the Dana Point dynasty, you know. So um, I felt, you know, again, you know, I could go back to school, or I could take this offer and go to move to Dana Point, you know, um, uh, San Clemente Capistrano. He was trying to eliminate Surfing Illustrated. Yeah, his competition. Right, and it's really the advertising because there isn't yeah. any money in the, you know. In, in the, uh, um, so you have subscri subscribers, but your newsstand is just eats it, uh, you know, eats the one that did the other one better, better sure. or whatever. So um, I arrive, you know, in this scene, you know, and, um, and here's Grubby, he asks for a trademark, you know. Here's Surfer, I, you know, redo the, you redo the uh, surfer title there, you know, the logo on it and, and the formatting. And I'm, I'm actually producing the magazine for him because I had this, this um, he didn't have anybody like me who, who knew how to manufacture the magazine. Right. Um, and stylize it with the art education. So he, ca he came to uh, the, the process with an art, edu art education, but he didn't, he had to find the, the process. He mm -hmm. had to, 
he had to learn it on you know online in a way but you know as on it was fly. being yeah you know, as it was being published month to month so the crafting of it got better and better yet he was a photographer and a filmmaker and an artist as well so he was no dummy you know sure he just didn't have the polish you know and that's what art center gave me is this modern modern you know modernism the structure of a grid so uh, with the printer, you know, and the flats and, and the designing and all that, I did probably nine issues. Okay. And, and then within the world there, you know, I would go to parties, you know, uh, socially, and, and uh, Hobie would be there, and Bruce right. Brown, and, and uh, John's wife, and, you know, just, uh, just a, a gang of all kinds of different people that you saw in the 50s. Right. You know, as when you were traveling from, from Malibu to uh, Windensea. Yeah. So, so the neighborhood then also became like that. The, the, the drop-bys, you know, mm -hmm. people going north, you know, uh, would drop by the office, you know. And then, and then Hollywood was interested, you know. So Hollywood guys would be in the hallway or, you know, be introduced to me. So it was a really a, a hub there. It was quite interesting as Art Center was going away. Yeah. <laughs> so I jumped into the car and got a night class going. So uh, I would drive up from San Clemente to uh, the center of L.A. on 3rd Street, you know, and go to this night school for two hours, you know, and then drive all the way back wow. twice, a, twice a, a week, you know. So that kept me within the school area. Sure. But, um, you know, here I was in, a, in, in the Dana Point dynasty, which was like being defined, yeah. you know, the, the sort of history in a sense, you know. And, <clears throat> and then I get this... Um, get these freelance jobs going and I meet this guy uh, R. Paul Allen you know who then is the manager for Bruce Brown and he's you know per, he's uh, you know packaged a, a, a three or four maybe two I guess uh, features for him right and and distributed it <clears throat> so we become friends uh, you know eating lunch together and, and dinners and all that stuff um, and so he asked for a business card. So I design him a business card, you know, and I've been designing the ads for all the different manufacturers, you know, uh, in my skillful um, uh, process, you know, of, of production. <clears throat> so this day comes where I enter um, Bruce Brown's world um, into this building and there's this moviola and... Um, and our Paul Allen and, and Bruce are there, and they say, "Well, here, this is the title." You know, so they show the title, and and uh, they want me to do something. So that's where the whole uh, kind of um, confusion starts. You know, is that the, he's a filmmaker, um, Paul is a promoter, so they have nothing to do with graphic design right. and communication that way. But they communicate with film and they communicate with, uh, with uh, promotion. That's what they became somewhat good at, you know. But what really drives it is the film. If the audience likes it, then they're communicating. Well, graphic design is the same way. It's a communication. Um, so it's it's an identity. Uh, it, it's read, you know. It's memorized or whatever. It has copy to support the visual metaphor. You know? mm -hmm. So, so as people learned, you know, um, over the years, um, you know, from film and pictures uh, and media, you know, it it became very powerful. Absolutely. You know, yeah. in the '60s, as as television was. Uh, 
um, you know, showing the uh, Kennedy assassination, you know, worldwide, you know, mm -hmm. as an image, um, uh, you know, the, the surf magazine went to 80,000 people around the world, you know, so, uh, and, and here comes the endless summer, which was just a packaged movie for high school, um, uh, audiences. You sure. know? Um, and so, so, so I coming in there from, from a, uh, the art center college of design, you know, having gone through all these lectures and everything, I understand what's going on here. You know, this mm -hmm. is the new world. Uh, media is going to be the dominant thing, as with my father, the age of flight, you know. So right. um, I notice that sometimes, like, um, the surf industry is run by a lot of people who wanted to be professional surfers and weren't able to, and so they fall back into some sort of a position. Yeah. But I notice that the, the longest strides are made by somebody like yourself who has just that little bit of discipline from actually getting an education in one way or another education education and being able to follow through with something and right. like you said Severson had a lot of these good attributes but he didn't really have the framework that you had right so you come in and just apply this framework right and all the pieces then the, the mechanism starts working right you right know? right um before we get into the endless summer kind of uh poster design i guess you left Surfing Illustrated to go work with Severson at Surfer. Um, after starting Surfing Illustrated, it looks like doing my research online that there's like 16 issues that exist of Surfing Illustrated. Did it go on without no, you? Yeah, it went on without me. Okay. Yeah. So were you only involved in the, just the incarnation, the just first the issue or yeah. two? Yeah. Okay. Um, the poster itself, the Bruce Brown iconic Endless Summer poster... We're looking at it right now from this Vanity Fair issue, March 2014. They did, um, I guess, like a four-page spread on you, the 50th anniversary of the movie. The image is so iconic, and um, the photo itself that the image, that your graphic design came from, can you tell me about the photo? Bruce is saying that it's an ad for, um, they're posing for an ad for um, Hang Ten. Okay. And I, he's looking at the trunks, but not so. You know, we were we went out there specifically to uh, Salt Creek to set that up, and I posed everybody, and uh, Bagley took the photograph. I didn't have the four by five, you know, but okay. I was directing it. But it was the objective of the photo shoot was to come up with an image for the poster. Right. Got right. it. Right. So so then you can see um, that that the uh, board and the trunks are further apart than they are in the image so are, yeah. so when i made the continuous tone um you know i i never saw it in color right and an artist has done this at at vanity fair colorized it it was always black and white oh really yeah interesting because <laughs> i was thinking i hadn't seen it in color either right right Right. So that continuous tone then uh, photograph, then uh, I took it over to Surfer, you know, and where in the dark room, then I could make it into a line resolution, which means it's a high contrast or the absence of halftone. Mm -hmm. um, and there was always uh, there was always a technical book that was given to us from the printer that showed all these different ways you could 
take a photograph and change it, you know, to a mezzo print or a line engraving or whatever, you know, so line resolution. Mm-hmm. So then um, the modernness behind it is Art Center. Okay. So the, the training about primaries and solids and all that stuff and color as well. Yeah. Right? So, so the structure of the background then is from Art Center, you know, and, and then the lettering, I couldn't get that font. So I drew, drew that mm-hmm. in 1963, if you can imagine, you know, with tools that yeah. I knew how to do that. So, um, so in that simplicity, you know, um, uh, in making that image was quite, you know, profound, yeah. you know, there it was. And, and because, uh, the, uh, the Dayglo paper that I could cut up this, the, the pieces and parts and then put the line resolution over the top of it, then I could show it to someone and they, it, it, it took the photograph and made it into a metaphor. Mm-hmm. You know, the image now was, uh, now looked like something, but it was totally abstract. Right, right. right. They didn't understand that. So, so then the first thing was to put a border around it and then put the type below it. Okay separated from the image you know and and then they didn't they didn't tell the story you know they didn't communicate the story so then they want to copy so we put the copy in you know and then put bruce brown films below it you know when you're hiring for a small business you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role and there's no faster or effective way than through linkedin jobs your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInJobs.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. Free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. The, your work, kind of touching on what something that you just said, is that your work often connects kind of with a very familiar and specific image, like a couple of surfers with their surfboards. But there's oftentimes an element of abstraction in it as well. And I think, um, and that would be, I guess, the extreme color palette in this example but people oftentimes i think have a hard time connecting with abstract work and they don't know how to understand it and then they can easily criticize it 
but your work has the ability to kind of draw people in with that familiarity of the surfers, but then the abstraction to kind of ponder and to think about the art uh, creatively. See that title right there below? No, right there, that big book. Seeing Abstract? Right. Yeah, is that the idea behind it? Yeah, that's who I became, yeah. Well, that was my question was, was The Endless Summer the first example really of that? Uh, lots of stuff went into Surfer. Okay. Surfer was a model in a way. Okay. And uh, and and because I was learning, I was practicing uh, uh, different code. You know that I saw the right. abstract code that I was able to like introduce into that magazine. Right. So uh, a, a photograph being read, you know, or tinted uh, as a duotone. Mm-hmm. You know, there were readers who said, oh, why is, it, why is it in that weird color, you know? Yeah, yeah. So that's all the abstract stuff that was like added to that. Well, was the Surfer or the Endless Summer um, poster, I guess, the first one that really penetrated mainstream culture, I guess? Okay, now that's another story. Yeah. Okay, so it was so big. You know, yeah. the Endless Summer got so big through the student sale, you know, from yeah. trade shows to to bookstores and college bookstores. Then then the psychedelic world came about, you know, in, in between 66 and 67. You know, right. Uh, after the summer of love and all that. So then the poster went into these head shops because it was selling so well at the colleges, you know. So it took off there. And then, and then the psychedelic posters from San Francisco um, uh, had a distributor that went into these stores, you know, from store to store, these head shop stores. So then you saw that going on then you saw peter max coming across you know into that distribution so there's the endless summer peter max and the avalon and uh, the family dog posters mm. and the personality posters personality posters is really dominating the room you know? okay and the endless summer is the best seller really yeah so how uh i don't know how much we're jumping ahead here but how did you transition into working with capitol records then and and doing music related posters so I have a relationship with uh, in in the South Bay, you know, with Warren Miller and his publicity guy, and uh, his publicity guy was knowledgeable, you know, had an education, and he was in the public relations business, and and he did a really good job you know, with Warren, you know, with the high school films, and then uh, and then doing auditorium films, you know, mm-hmm. and and so. Um, he had been in New York and at a trade show in 1966, um, and and saw this endless summer poster being sold and called me, you know, hmm. and said, "John, you know, there's they're selling this poster." So I have nothing to do with it at this point, you know. I've I've left Surfer and I was freelancing, and and Bruce came to that, and Maury and all the and, and all these guys that. Uh, wanted advertising from me, so I had work uh, coming in, separated from everybody. Then along comes uh, Summer Vacation in 65 came up, or 66 came up, and I got a job uh, um, in a building uh, where the, that was like the Ferris Gallery, and it was like the uh, the art scene, so I felt, you know, this is going to be good, you know, and I had a design job in this one uh, agency there, you know in a little, you know, had my own room and all that, and I would draw these comps for the guy, you know. And <clears throat> the Endless Summer poster had had arrived, and I got the job because of the Endless Summer poster. Uh, you know, a big day glow thing, and they're holding up in front of these people, and they say, wow, okay, so what else can you do, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, 
So, so within that operation there, these two buildings, one, one had the agency and the other had the, uh, the, um, had the Ferris Gallery, uh, which was where Pop Art and Andy Warhol were, and all the, you know, all the, the most competitive new things were happening there. Um, uh, Ed Ruscher, the famous artist, was the production guy but putting out um, uh, Art Forum magazine every month you know mm-hmm. <laughs> so he was just like me uh, doing surfer but he was doing art forum so uh, we would go to lunch and everything and and it was a nice it was a nice scene he was trying to be a painter you know this famous painter but he was a graphic designer in the beginning so yeah. in the in in the mix there somehow or another uh pat uh, blackwell says well you can go up to the Capitol and maybe illustrate for them you know i said oh okay fine you know so i uh, so I go over there and I go up the elevator to the sixth floor of the art department, you know, and I and uh, I have my portfolio of the magazines, but I have the poster in there. Yeah, this big poster. So I pull that poster out in front of this art director, and he reaches over into the cabinet, this Italian white cabinet with all these perfect books in it, and he pulls out an endless summer soundtrack album. Wow! Holds it up in front of me, and. You know, the two in his mind. Yeah, that's the connection. I went there. Yeah. You know? um, yet I, yet it was, uh, yet the art was just uh, uh, sent up there, and somebody constructed it and yeah. put it on the cover. You know. Yeah, yeah. So, so the, uh, so the art director says, uh, uh, George Osaki says, uh, okay, and he's uh, like a Hawaiian beach boy who's got this job as the. Uh, um, Art services of Capitol Records on the sixth floor for the all these art directors, you know? and he says, uh, um, "I'm going to call you in a couple weeks. I think I have something for you." You know, so he, so in that day, you you had a telephone. You didn't have an answering service. You okay, know? you didn't have <laughs> no cell phone. <laughs> no cell phone. So you had to kind of stick around. Yeah. During the day, and so the days were so hot and smoggy in this in this new studio I had rented. You know. No air conditioning. It was just you know like sweating from one day to the other. So um, so finally the call comes and I go up to the uh, the Vine office there, and and I go up the elevator to the not to the uh, eighth floor, okay. the executive floor, and uh, I get out of the elevator and I walk over to this door and I open the door up you know and there's Brown Meigs you know who's the vice president of the CRDC you know and he's looking at me and he has a blue suit on and a black tie and a white shirt and all that and he looks at me he says okay you're going to be my art director you can't turn this job down wow and so I said well fine so the endless summer had, you know, as a rumor, had just gone through this office, right? Mm-hmm. So here's this kid who's like 25. He's like done this thing called the endless summer. <clears throat> well, we're going to hire him. <clears throat> so there I am, hired as the personal art director to Brown Meigs, the vice president of the CRDC, the distribution side, who signed the Beatles to the label in 1963. Wow. So he's responsible for that. Yeah. Wow. So he, so the brown and brown and, and the right. endless summer and the Beatles all kind of converge. Yeah. So the first job is like, uh, will you do the promotional uh, process for Sergeant Peppers? Oh, sure. And I mean, I assume. <laughs> so I do all these decorations, you know, for the record stores. You know? I assume you were a Beatles fan. Oh yeah, Who of course. Yeah, right? yeah. You know, I mean, uh, so I, le- we- I left. Uh, 
I, I left Dana Point with uh, I want to hold your hand yeah, on yeah. the radio totally. <laughs> of the car. <laughs> I just I can't imagine a bigger job being placed in your lap. You had to be thrilled, right? Right. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, you know, and and uh, but my studio was in the art scene over on Wilshire and uh, uh, Coronado next yeah. to. Uh, Otis Art Institute and and uh, and and Cal Arts or Chenard, you know, and mm-hmm. and that was my social group, you know, and so I would have to put a suit on, you mm-hmm. know, and look like a dandy from the Rolling Stones to go to the office on mm-hmm. Vine Street and then go to these fancy restaurants for lunch, you know, and meet all these different people, you know, and have a have a beetle haircut, right? <laughs> you know, it was very funny, and then I would come back and have to take off all this tire and then get back into the underground, which came out of the art schools. Well, did your art peers or your surfing peers make fun of you for putting on the suit? They didn't. They couldn't understand. Okay. Because because the the, uh, the hippie you know things comes really strong yeah. right there. You know, it comes across in uh 67 68 when the when acid when uh, orange sunshine and the brotherhood are happening you know on a on on an la and a california basis you know so i i think that um hollywood's always been endeared by surfing you know and there's a glamour with surfing so creating that most iconic surf related image of all time really would obviously grant you access into that world but at the same time the work that you're doing in music kind of validates you to the surfing world right you know it's like yeah one of our own is an artist that's cool but once the general world and the music world validates you and loves you and wants you and is supporting you then you know now the surfers have something to be proud of Right, our but, little boy did good out yes, in the big world. Yeah, no, you know? very true. But but also, you know what I'm what I've learned, you know, as a surfer is to be hip. Yeah. So as I enter Hollywood, I realize that these guys don't smoke uh, grass. You know? Yeah. Uh, they aren't. They're they're like uh, uh, ten miles or, or six miles from from all the art parties, or whatever. And maybe they go to the the uh, strip. But they don't even do that. They just hang out in bars and mm-hmm. get drunk. You know, that's that's sure. Uh, and and wear these Italian suits and and try to look like uh, Hollywood. You know. Right. So here I this is what Brown saw. He saw someone from the underground. You know. Yeah, yeah. And who would understand uh, the the material coming across? You know, the media. You know. Right. So 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 what I had to do is look like look like the Rolling Stones mm-hmm. or the Beatles, you know, and even the Beatles were making their change from from uh, the, the Cockney uh, Liverpool world with a suit over the top of it, you know, to to these uh, hipster, you know, taking acid and Indian music and all that. Right. Right. So <clears throat> so it's really about being hip. Mm-hmm. And and that's what they noticed, you know. They needed a touchstone. Yeah, like, wow, he's hip. Yeah. He, he was hip here. He's hip there, too. Right. right. And a part of surfing is the dumbness, you know, the sure. uncultured quality to it. But it has its hipness, you know. Right. Yeah. You know, so you have to understand that, you know, the words coming out, the lingo coming out of the mouth, you know, of, of, of someone who's not very educated, but a hell of a surfer, you know. Right. Well, the passion is what translates. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So you had to had to admire that, you know. Right. I mean, when you're in front of Mickey Dora, you know, there's there's Hollywood. Right. Right there, you know, and you're just learning as a surfer, like, 
Hollywood hip, you know, mm-hmm. and that's where that comes from, you know. Right. Um, the Malibu, you know, uh, Mickey Dora is like, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, comes out of this blue um, uh, LaSalle Cadillac convertible, you know, and, and pulls his board out of the back, you know, and, and this white thing, but these funny uh, patches all over it in multiple colors, you know, that someone's done for him. You know, and and uh, walks down and then prances down to the water, you know, and he goes out there and all the pose and the fit and that, you know. I mean, and then he comes in, he doesn't say anything, really. Yeah. He's just like this beautiful movie star, mm-hmm. you know, of its day. So Interesting. But cutting the, the fabric and the communication of being the hip surfer. Mm-hmm. During the 60s and 70s, John designed the album cover work for the Beatles' Magical Mystery Tour, the Rolling Stones' Exile on Main Street, Jefferson Airplane's Crown of Creation, Kisses Hotter Than Hell, The Grateful Dead's Skeleton in the Closet, Blondie's Eat to the Beat, and many, many more. This was also the heyday of the concert poster, and John is responsible for some of the best known. Here's Shepard Ferry again, talking about John's 1968 pinnacle Jimi Hendrix poster. I think what really struck me about, about John's Hendrix image is that it's uh, capturing the essence of, of Hendrix, the, the hair, the fashion, his sort of uh, you know, flourishy uh, at scarves and jackets and, and everything, but it's done so in a way that's abstracted with um, supreme elegance and confidence. There's no more information than is necessary, and it's also in, incredibly stylized to be um, emblematic of, of, of something that John did, not that was inherent in a photograph. At that time, I hadn't really intellectualized it yet, but I definitely, you know, it hit me in the gut. I was, um, I was open to the feeling that that tension between a human being and their, and their representation and an artist's interpretation actually make, maybe making their legend, their, their essence even more powerful than a real photo could. That was what I thought the piece delivered, as well as, um, a nod to the psychedelic, but without the loss of clarity or the ambiguity that a lot of the psychedelic art, um, I, I think, uh, suffered. You've interacted with, obviously, a lot of celebrities and famous people and important and influential people, both in the surfing world and in the music scene. Is there anybody who stands out to you as prolific that, um, I mean, I've interacted with, you know, fairly important people and some of them, you walk away from the meeting and go, well, that let me down, you know? And there's tons of celebrities nowadays who are famous for nothing. Yeah. Was there anybody that, you know, you felt like you were in the presence of greatness with or that was particularly prolific? Uh, Michael Thompson. Really? Yeah. Sean his, Thompson's cousin, is it? Yeah, yeah, I was his consultant, design consultant. For what? His, For the business of Gotcha. Gotcha, got yeah. it. And starting the other brands. You know. 
Okay. So did you work together regular, like on a day-to-day basis? Uh, weekly. Wow. So being a consultant, it was uh, came out of being at Cal Arts for like um, seven years as a teacher, mm-hmm. and leaving that institution and saying, "Well, I'm not going to teach um, a 19-year-old anymore. Uh, I'm not going to go through that process, you know, because yes, I get a good student out of it, and they get benefits from me, but I really." $200 a week, you know, uh, for a teaching job, you know, is great for politics and, uh, but not financial. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I'd have to always work really hard, you know, and then I'd take the Friday off and I'd go out for four hours and stand there and do my, uh, you know, kind of like a TV show. You know? Sure. So, um, I decided in 1980, I would be a, a, a design consultant. So I'd separate myself. And I would go to the vice president, which I had learned from the record business, sure. uh, who, who could almost say yes, who would introduce <laughs> me to the president, which is like Michael Thompson. Got it. And he can say yes. He can say yes. Got it. Um, I couldn't get to um, quick, couldn't get through Quicksilver's politics. Mm-hmm. You know? um, uh, and at that time, um, I, I was involved in Jimmy. So uh, I was a part of the creation of Jimmy. So everybody had to say yes to me. <laughs> right. And, uh, and I had an art dealer friend, uh, Jim Corcoran, who, who was managing the money. So he was like my producer and, and then Ganser and, uh, Sepp were administrators, you know, and, and, but I was the head of the media, you know, in the sense of designing what people are going to see mm-hmm. on these pages. And so I did devised a black and white campaign for them. And, and asked for seventy-five thousand dollars from the from from Corcoran, and they paid it. Right? <laughs> Gotta and, love that. And had a national campaign in black, uh, in black and white. You know, yeah. which was like unbelievable. You know, yeah. uh, for very little money, but that created the brand look. Yeah, I loved that brand when I was yeah. growing up. Yeah. Really, whatever happened to it? Why did it go away? Uh, really? Yeah, the two. Yeah, just were management. Yeah, um, you did. They got so bad at saying yes that all they got is no's at a certain point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because see, when you're in, you know, the interesting part is what I'm complaining about is that is the corporation. You know, um, the the problem with with Jimmy Z is that is that it, it started like as a uh, Malibu underground, you know, uh-huh. that you could photograph and you could talk about it and you could see because of its connection to uh, Malibu and and um, uh, Topanga, and it was such in opposite to OP, which was Orange County, you know, which was a developed market, developed market about these corduroy right. uh, pants, you know, or short pants, you know. Um, uh, but they had de- they got into the t-shirt business and they were really big in the Midwest, you know, mm. and, um, and, and had a huge, uh, you know, millions and millions of dollars coming in. So they d- redefined the business, you know, mm-hmm. OP just said, said, here we are, you know, we've made, you know, like, uh, uh, half, a, uh, half a billion dollars, you know, and, um, so Jimmy Z then, uh, is, uh, fragile, you know, uh, and, and uh, to make it work is that you have to sign all these papers and you have to make it into a corporation and then you have to get the money, you know, to keep it going. And the distribution and the manufacturing and the factors and all this complex stuff, you know. So, so there you are um, 
in your first year and you've made five million, then in the next year you've made uh, uh, 16 million, you know, and then in the f fourth or fifth, you're at $50 million, you know, and you can't get factored invoices because you don't have anything behind you. So you have to go borrow mm -hmm. from somebody who then gets a piece of the company. So, so it becomes like an agency. It becomes like a corporation, you know, and it, it turns itself into the same thing where everybody in it can say no. Yeah. And very few people can say yes. Right. And those people on, that say yes are on cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> that complicates things. Right. And so in front of their eyes, like an illusion, it goes away one day very quickly. Yep. And the audience has got their tongue out waiting for more. Yeah. In addition to his expansive body of work in the surf and music industries, John was commissioned to do a mural in Los Angeles for the 1984 Olympics. He also designed the logo for the Fat Burger restaurant chain and more. In 2009, John was commissioned to create his most ambitious work. The downtown area of Las Vegas, the original Vegas Strip, has a pedestrian-only street which covers five blocks and has a 1,500-foot-long domed video screen that covers the length of the street and creates essentially a ceiling about 90 feet above the street level. The screen is made up of 12.5 million LED lights and boasts a 550,000 watt stereo system. It's a completely unique, all-encompassing, one-of-a-kind multimedia outdoor experience in the heart of Las Vegas. It's known as the Fremont Street Experience, and John Van Hammersveld was commissioned to design the light installation. Well, let's see, it kind of all goes back to 1983 where I meet um, uh, Steve Jobs on the Lisa computer. Uh, I, through my architectural... I had not heard of this story. <laughs> Fill through, me in. Through my architectural uh, uh, affiliation with the Olympics. Okay. Because um, you did... I know you did a mural I in did 84. A, a, yeah. Okay. I did a mural. So between uh, 80 and 84... Uh, I was uh, interested in computers. Okay. Um, and they were big mainframes, and architects were just starting to use it for designing skyscrapers and all that. And uh, and they were trying to bring it down to a smaller size, a PC, you know, down to something you could use architecturally. So up comes Jobs, you know, and he asked for a photograph, you know, from me. Comes where? where he comes. He, <laughs> he sends his art director to my studio. Okay. And asked me to to sit there and take a picture of me with a Lisa in front of me. Okay. Oh, I've seen this image. Yeah. So that's where it all starts, right there. So, so then, then he left. They the wanted. To, did Apple want to use this image in their? They're sure. They're selling. Got it. Yeah. An image of you designing architecture? Yeah. Got it. Oh, a graphic designer, actually. Okay. Okay, so did you meet Jobs uh, personally? So uh, so then when I went to the TED conference, it was the first TED conference in Monterey with uh, Ricky Saul Warman starting out that, that thing you have today. There's Jobs with four Macs. And the Lisa's gone, right? And mm -hmm. these little Macs are there, and he's in a suit, and it's, hi, how are you? <laughs> you? I was in your shot there, right? How did that translate to the uh, signs of life at the Las Vegas thing? All right, so uh, 
so I'm uh, so so Jobs is giving me um, computers uh, when he's at Next. So I have the the Cube and um, uh, several of a lot of us of the senior graphic designers. I was still you know older than most at that time. Uh, we all got these computers that he was designing and putting together, trying to get the market at you. So. Um, so first came the cube and then the next dimension and the next dimension is the computer you have today okay this is like in 1991 something like that so you can see how they parceled out the mm -hmm. technology for you know a good 25 years or so so there's where i learned how to take the computer into a different world you know as much as i had done the architecture of uh, uh, of the fatburger chain which was going from drawings to computers uh, in in the early 90s there, uh, from 90 to 95, you know, um, I, I was able to understand all that stuff. So then when I went to, the, you know, went to Las Vegas and, and into this whole kind of new thing called the Fremont uh, experience, you know, you looked up and you said, wow, this is fucking great, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, and then you go down to the office and you see this uh, in a room this size, a big, huge computer that's been set up to actually um, take each tile, you know, in this 1,500-foot dome that's 90 feet high and 100 feet wide, and to see see how, uh, these little kind of tw uh, probably I think they were like two feet, yeah, 20, 24 by oh, eight, something like that, bricks okay. or like panels. And so there were 17,000 of those with um, 24 lights on them. Okay. On just that one little piece. Sure. Okay, but then you go back down to the office, you know, and walk into this room, and that was the, that was the computer that chopped our data up. Okay. So then we went into another room, and there were like six monitors. And then, and then sitting next to it was me on, on my laptop. And what was in my laptop is all my line work, you know, that I had have pulled together for years um, as a vernacular. Mm -hmm. So then from there was just using uh, Adobe programs, okay, you know, Premiere and this and that, you know, and, and putting the, uh, this data together, you know, it took about, oh, you know, three months or something like that, just periodically going up to Las Vegas for, you know, two weeks at a time. Right. That uh, uh, this I make this film, you know, an yeah. artist making a film. Normally, these commercial people have made the film. Sure. Uh, for the Doors or uh, American Pie or you know um, Kiss or you know mm -hmm. all those various. So this is like the only artist doing actually one of them. And so today it's still there. Five years later. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, it was a ten million people would see it per year. So fifty million people saw it. Crazy. Are you um, happy with the work and the experience? Oh yeah, it was unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, nothing like it. You know, mm. and they want me to do another one, but they—they're—I'm uh, uh, not sure if that same uh, person that I did it with is with the company because they got to—we got to do it, take it away from the normal manufacturers of that kind of uh, cinema. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, that—that's done in Burbank. We were able to do that. Uh, alone by ourselves, mm -hmm. you know, uh, um, putting the data together and yeah. then and then being able to send that to the computer or right. to have it cut, you know, a lot easier to do yeah. it that way. So that's my 
trail, I guess. Yeah. Um, what? Tr- not I. Not trying to force a metaphor, but just something that I thought of with one of the things I was reading about you or I saw about you. You have a you had a quote that said, "Art is a derivative of destruction." Good. Right. Yeah. About kind of destroying or breaking down raw material and using it to create something anew. Abstraction. Abstraction. That reminded me of surfing in a way in that you are, I mean, quite literally stripping down and you're at odds with the elements or trying to persevere the elements and you're at your kind of rawest form and you catch a wave and everything, all your past life experiences now are being expressed through you on this wave. You've been stripped down, but now there's an expression, you know. Um, which is then an abstraction. Which is an abstraction, right. I got, always got to bring it back to abstraction. <laughs> <laughs> um, but can you talk about what the, about that quote, art is a derivative of destruction? Art is, art is a derivative of destruction. You know, you go get those art supplies, you know, and you beat the hell out of them, mm-hmm. you know, and there's a painting, you know. Yeah. And, and yes, you can, uh, you can convert realism to, or the photograph in front of you, mm-hmm. which a lot of artists do. But in most cases, it's always abstract, you know, from yeah. Picasso to Duchamp to yeah. everyone is seeking the abstraction, the, a different way of looking at a painting. You know? Right. As much as the earlier, you know, 20th century art is just stuck in this abstraction thing, yeah. you know, as, as much as earlier art history is, um, is, is. Uh, based upon a rendered image mm-hmm. to look like the reality or the sure. imagination, you know. But say uh, the interesting part of um, Rembrandt is that he would have he would have these modeled professional. He would have these po- politicians come in to the uh, and and sit for him, right? So he'd stand them all up, you know, in this sort of kind of like a group, you know, and then he would just do this beautiful, fantastic painting, right? And then you'd have to have the politicians over to take a look at the at the piece, and they didn't like what they looked like. So you had those problems in that day: is that what the person felt they looked like, mm-hmm. and what they saw in the painting that the artist made of them? Then they would fire him. <laughs> right. So they're always dealing with. Uh, 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 in the Beaux Arts way, they were always dealing with this realism. Yeah, and they made abstractions in realism. You know, let's say the Dutch masters and all that. With the uh, uh, in art history, the you know here's a like a, a still life of all this fruit and this and that. You know, and yeah. candles and everything. And then apparently that's like a political statement. You know. Yeah, yeah. That the uh, art historian could go on and on about. <laughs> I I don't know even where. I heard this quote, or if it's actually true, or if it's just a uh, something that's made up to illustrate the point. But it was about like Picasso on a train, you know, and and somebody recognizes him, a passenger recognizes him, and approaches him and says, "Hey, you know, you're a very famous painter, but why don't you paint more realistically?" And he says, "What is re- what is reality to you?" And he pulls out a photograph of his wife out of his wallet, and he goes, "This is reality." And Picasso says, wow, well, your wife is very small and one-dimensional. <laughs> very true. Yeah. See, the, the problem with the naive, you know, in all of this with the word A-R-T is that they, they look at everything as a painting, you know, or a, a copy of yeah. realism in some form or another, you know. 
and uh, and so where uh, plain air is sort of uh, a still life, it's uh, and it's supposed to be realism. It's still like an abstraction yeah. in a way, you know, not not like abstract expressionism or impressionism. Mm -hmm. You know, let's say the impressionist painters going to the outside of Paris, you know, to make these flamboyant color is sort of, you know, images that were diffused, you know, mm -hmm. versus the urban part of it, you know, uh, Seurat, you know, and, uh, um, you know, uh, with these very articulated, uh, realistic things, you know, that were um, still abstract, but it was still formed around linear images. It mm -hmm. had a narrative to it. Yeah. What, um, you've obviously taught in, in art school and, um, I kind of always struggle with that, like with the concept. It's easy to teach art history, I guess, or not easy, but I understand teaching art history. There's facts that exist, and I'm going to convey these facts to you. Um, I kind of wonder what the limitations are in teaching and even evaluating art in that, let me kind of draw the metaphor back to surfing, I guess, in that I struggle with the same thing in judging surfing and professional surfing where it's like we can give you this criteria of what we think is great and what we want to see but really what I want out of you is complete personal unique expression that I haven't seen before now go do it you know what I mean yeah well, okay so at the art school then the student is left high school um, in a very conventional um, you know process of trying to teach art you know to, right. to the student right, but right. But also the environment, you know, has influenced. And so the, you know, they come to school and drawing dragons and mm -hmm. waves and, you know, all, all these uh, kind of uh, almost fables, you know, of the society. But they're like nail, they're, they're still narratives. They're still blocked to, to old tales or, or some kind of realism of sorts, you know. So, yeah. so the, the teacher really is bohemian, is really a beatnik. Okay in front of the students, you know. And uh, they're, they're trying to teach poetry or verse, uh, um, disjointed um, fragmentations, not stories. And that's where it all starts. And so the student wants a story, but he gets fragments and he gets frustrated, you know, and can't believe it. And then he has to dig into his own world, you know, and find fragments that have some interesting quality to them, but they don't go, you know, into narrative, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so you battle with these students' minds, you know, for like a year or two, and you're just beating them up, you know, rejecting every possible narrative that they're trying to like establish or, or work with you, you know, mm -hmm. um, and and all these supplies, you know, and all these materials are all going into these pieces, you know, that they're making, and and what's happening in front of them is abstract. It's not narrative, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, they're metaphors of an abstraction, you know, because uh, you have modernism, you know, crossing over against Bo Bozartism, you know, or an older history of of uh, painting. And, and paint turns to plastic and it goes from oil to vinyl, you know, mm -hmm. and, and then all of a sudden it goes away so that there's not even that, you know, yeah, there's yeah. a guy standing there, you know, talking about a white wall mm -hmm. and the way you want to look at it, you know? <laughs> just like a Michael Asher thing. Yeah. You're here, the wall's white, you know, yeah. and we're going to articulate why it is an institutional form. Yeah. 
So do you... And the student's going, why are we here? Yeah. Where, where are the pictures? Where, you know, you're the picture watching the wall. <laughs> well, relating that back to surfing, do you appreciate or care about competitive surfing at all? Well, you know, as a surfer, you, you know, that, you know, Malibu, you know, 1983, you know, you're at the, at the third point, there's five people, you know, that mm -hmm. are, that have come in almost from different villages, right? Mm -hmm. And you're there with them, you know, and there's a structural uh, politic that's going on and who's going to get the wave, you know, and when, and then there's all these guys inside, you know, who right. are going to jump in at the last second, cut you off, you know? Yeah. And so uh, the object is to be able to paddle really well, you know, and, and be able to catch the wave before everybody else does mm -hmm. and take position, you know, and then just clean everybody out as you went in. Right. <laughs> That's competitive. Absolutely. Yeah. But also, uh, it's, it's, uh, it tells a story at the same time, you know, the wave and the man and the pose and, and the articulated um, physical vernacular, you know, mm -hmm. that, that's taking place almost as a, a painting, a visual, mm -hmm. a photograph, you know, of which we worship right. in this day and age. We worship the photograph, which is just a split second, you know, yeah. of the person getting into that position. You know? mm -hmm. So I see that, you know, and I follow that. Yeah. And I always remember the day uh, I was with these two graphic or these two industrial designers at Wind and Sea, and I was pointing uh, out at uh, Big Rock or something like that, or no, uh, Simmons, Simmons Reef, and I was saying, see that wave out there? Now, in my mind, I'm right there. I'm in the wave, you know. Mm -hmm. I'm, oh, yeah, he's going to make it there, you know. Or, you know, even if there wasn't a person, I'd say, well, I can make that part. And I'm down bottom, you know. And the two, the two uh, industrial designers are trying to focus on, what, it, what are you looking at? Mm. So perception has a lot to do with what the surfer is, you know. So uh, uh, Jojo Florence, you know. John John. John John. John yeah. John Florence. Uh, John John Florence is, is so deeply, at 18, 19 years old, is so deeply into the perception yeah. of what this wave is all about and being able to construct, you know, his abstraction, you know, mm -hmm. in the middle of it and make it through, you know, this natural process you know mm -hmm. of a wave breaking its inertia you know and the slope yeah yeah that's interesting i i think about that sometimes how much gratification i get out of just like you said kind of mind surfing yeah. and the imagining of it and how it's actually pretty similar to the act of physically riding the wave i can um imagine it enough to where it feels almost like a reality or there's times where I, I'm forced to sit out of the water for a couple weeks, but I'm thinking about surfing more than I would on weeks where I surf regularly, you know, and I... Memories, I, memories. You're like a computer. You know? Yeah. Memories. Yeah. And practice and doing it over and over again so the board doesn't pearl anymore. But as a... Now it turns right. Now it turns left. But as, but, a, as oh, a younger... Oh, I'm on the nose in the curl. As a younger person, though... I had no appreciation for the the thinking of it. It was all physicality, you know. What do you got? There was a French guy that came by uh, uh, with this. Uh, the best is the West. I right? watched his thing. Yeah, and so read that aloud. It says um, it's a quote from you, and it says, yeah. 
Surfing is a fantasy in your mind. It's a natural system. It's real. It happens in a cycle every year. It's real. But it's you thinking about it and getting a fantasy from it. It takes over. It becomes another world. Your world. That's exactly what that is. Yeah. Yeah. I was curious about John's current relationship with surfing, and I was surprised to learn that he hasn't actually surfed since 1991. Oh, you haven't surfed since 1991? Okay. It's the water. The water's dangerous. Because of the uh, bacteria and that sort of thing? Yeah. Yeah. My doctor, and I was in Malibu for like 12 years, so my surf doctor, Dr. Harris, um, would... uh, after every big swell you know the thing about malibu that's so interesting is it only breaks like seven or eight times through the summer where it's big sure because of the uh uh the uh, southern hemis and how all that works and everything so really in a way you're just waiting around you mm-hmm. know for like 30 days for this the it to be six foot and then it goes up to 12 and then it goes back down again and you have to come up with a discipline to keep yourself in shape you know? mm-hmm. <laughs> but essentially it's the water um, and so through the month, you're going in, you know, for these two to three foot waves and um, and you're getting exposed to this, you know, to this bacteria. And so I was shitting white one day, you know, no. and I went to the doctor. He went to see uh, um, Dr. Harris and he said, well, the thing you have to understand, John, is that you can't go in the water every day because it breaks down your resistance. And so AIDS was going on during that time. And so I really decided that I would uh, look into all this uh, around 1990, you know, and I threw a, uh, an event um, at the uh, uh, at Pepperdine Auditorium called uh, Surf Geo, <clears throat> and it was about, and they had all these people come in, like there were like four or five different doctors and speakers on the subject of that. And they really outlined the whole thing about the water, the, the you know, the, about the mercury and the fish that you could eat above and the fish you wouldn't eat below, you know. And so it was a pretty disturbing thing, you know. And then uh, um, Hyperion uh, has a pipe that goes out five miles, you know, and then they just drop it out there. But they talk about all the stages that they went through to create a, a, a cleaner poop you know mm-hmm. <laughs> but you have the you, you have all, this whole LA thing being siphoned down into this little tube you know and processed and then sent out there and dropped off well the ocean works in a very uh, you know kind of interesting way you know that it has stratus to it you know and and it has currents that are moving below and above sure. in the middle whatever based upon the storms above you know what's being sucked up and what's being sent down so Who's to say, really? Oh yeah. Part you know, particle-wise, what's out there? Uh, yeah, five miles isn't that far. Right, <laughs> right. And and uh, and is that contributing to the bacteria? Why would you go in there when yeah. it's when it is uh, the fourth most polluted in California? Yeah, I don't think that I will now. <laughs> Thoroughly disturbed. <laughs> yeah, and and when I and I love the third point. You know, I mean, and you have three peaks there that are unbelievable, and yeah. you jump from one to the other. You know, uh, with a with a even with a long board. You know, you skid over that first peak, and then you go into the next, drop into the next one. It's exciting. You know, mm-hmm. 
uh, at just the right tide and everything. And then you paddle down to, uh, you know, to the, um, what they call the third point, you know, and, and then it's kind of slow and reasonable and you like it. But on a 12 foot day, it's fantastic. You know? Yeah. We just but got still you're, you know, still, uh, if you look down, you, there's all kinds of fucking particles all over the place that, that you have to keep your mouth shut, you know? Yeah. And these guys are, you're always talking to them, oh, I got an ear infection. I, oh, my nose is all fucked up, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, my throat, I was sick the other day. I mean, you know, this is all going on in normal life, you know. And, and everyone's eyes are still on the surf. Good God, it's so fucking fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> it, you're right, though. It's become part of surfing is you're going to get ear infections and you're going to get sick. I've yeah. accepted that, yeah. you know. Yeah. It's just part of it. One of, uh, or kind of a final question for everybody that I interview is, um, what was the last surfboard that you rode? I know it was 1991, but can you remember? Yeah. Um, let's see, I think at that point I, can I, re I can't remember his name. Um, you know, one of the guys I met, you know, in Malibu, you know, who uh, worked at Natural Progression, one of the shapers, you know, um, I, I, uh, Lance made a board that is Lance Carson, you know. Mm -hmm. So I had an idea uh, that 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 uh, handling these breaks, you know, with all with the smaller boards coming in, and even with my mid range, you know, uh, Lance Carson, everything was great. But I wanted to be further out at uh, Point Doom because the pollution wasn't as bad there, <laughs> and uh, and you have to, you have uh, a set of waves that. That when it's big, you know, so you have to, you know, get that big wave and, and it breaks and then it breaks again. So how do you go from one to the other and how do you even get it? You know, yeah. so I had a, I had, had a, uh, had the, the, the shape that I like, you know, but I pushed the uh, mass forward, you know, so it was a little thinner as it went back to the tail. And so what I noticed is that when I paddled, I was, uh, straight along the water. I wasn't dragging at all, mm -hmm. you know, um, because for some odd reason, if you push the weight back, you then tend to have the nose higher up in the water, you know, but if you, if you put it forward, then that's flattened out, you know, so when you're paddling, all that momentum that you get, you know, from, from being forward and you're forward in the, you know, the wave is making you forward at the same time. And then when you, when, when you hit it uh, and you're traveling, you know, and then you start putting the tail down, then you have this really nice, thin, fast board, you know, because right. of the tail section, you know. And, and so um, that board, you know, was just like incredible. Where was that, that was like a revolution to me after all the surfboards, you know, I had I had one that commanded the water politically. Yeah. Do you still have the board? No. No. Do you have any of your collection of surfboards? My quiver from, no, from Malibu? No. What happened to it? People stole it. Really? Yeah. Legitimately? Yeah. From where? Just from garages and storage and wow. this and that. Yeah. Crazy. I was thinking about that first board from Velzi with the hammer... Tahitian hammer logo yeah, on it. Yeah. I wonder where that thing is. I can't imagine. Yeah, curious though. You know, there was like one uh, Phil uh, in, in my world of uh, of the surfing magazines in Dana Point, and I was a friend of uh, uh, Phil Edwards, so I got a Phil Edwards eleven foot gun from him. You know? Wow. And 
and long and narrow, you know, yeah. and so on bigger ways, it was really, you know, amazing. And uh, I struggled on smaller ways, but mm-hmm. on big ways, it was really good. Yeah. And I left that at a house uh, in Portuguese Bend and went to art school, you know, and, and then later found out that it had been cut down, you know, and oh. reshaped. <laughs> Heartbreak. Yeah. Are you interested? I mean, kind of this conversation started with Endless Summer. Are you interested in modern surf films at all? Or have you kept up with any? Uh, some are sent here, you know, on yeah. a disc, you know. I mean, yeah. again, again, you know, it's not um, it's not the way, I wa- the way it was when I was 14, you no. know, where it was very exotic, you know. And you went to a high school and saw Bud Brown there, you know, mm-hmm. and it was like a news newsreel. And you would see some of the local surfers who had, you know, made that trip and made that wave and, yeah. you know, and they were in the movie. I lament the change uh, because when I was growing up, it, it was mainly on VHS, but I really cherished um, those movies because they were less frequent than they are now. I had to save $30 to buy one, you know, and, and then I'd take it home and I would watch the thing until the VHS was burned out. And it was exotic. And um, it, But then your digestion of it, you don't take it as seriously either. If you're going to this high school auditorium to watch it, you're invested. If you just open a new window on your computer and click play and it's free. Okay, well then, then where we are, you know, basically, and I, I always love doing this, um, you know, we our our history is scheduled in sort of a natural process, you know, uh, of our own mental, you know, kind of um, uh, fabrication of what's in front of us. Mm-hmm. We, in a sense, you know, determine what's in front of us, how we look at it, you know, where we're positioned in it, and what it's going to do to us. You know, so computers are simulations. So basically. Um, the camera's going to the water there, and it's a simulation right. of what's actually happening there, you know. And and so then that's fed back to you, you know, as as a message from a foreign place. Right. And you're there uh, perceiving only what they want you, they or the simulation wants to give you. So your experience is left out, mm-hmm. and and your memorization sometimes is left out as well. You're not concentrating the same way because you're not physically in it, sure. in that reality, in that perception. So essentially, this whole surf thing is perception, mm. and and a, uh, a, a and and your whole body movements and everything is a, is a historic uh, storage mm-hmm. of in the mind, you know, mm. of how you coordinate yourself and how you center yourself in the world.
John Van Hammersveld documents his transition from the surfing community into music and psychedelia in his autobiographical book, My Art, My Life. He also released a coffee table style book last year covering the past 50 years of his graphic design work. We have a link to both books on our website, surfsplendorpodcast.com. Also, the audio you heard of Shepherd Fairy was taken from a video interview by Daniel Boreen. We have the full 20-minute video on our website, along with a couple other videos of John and, of course, a lot of imagery of his work, including the incredible Las Vegas light installation, Signs of Life. Lastly, if you're in Southern California, John and his wife recently opened a gallery space in downtown San Pedro. The space was formerly the Williams Bookstore, established in 1909 and made famous by catering to patrons like Charles Bukowski. It's an amazing space in a very cool downtown area. I highly recommend a visit. We have a link to all that information where you can contact John or his wife to make an appointment to visit. All of that's on surfsplendorpodcast.com. Thank you, John, for a wonderful afternoon. If you, the listener, enjoyed this episode, go through our archives and listen to past episodes with many other icons of the surfing world. Everything is available for free on our website, in iTunes, or wherever you download podcasts. And of course, invest in the future of the show by simply sharing this episode with a friend. The more listeners we have, the more shows we will be able to produce. Thanks for listening. This is David Scales for Surf Splendor saying, until next week, ciao. And, uh, you know, I was a skier. We didn't talk about skiing with Dewey Weber or any of that stuff. No, I didn't. <laughs> so the South Bay, you know, um, uh, and uh, 395 to Mammoth, you know, is is a routine during the winter that mm-hmm. was when the surf was... Uh, you know, the summer was gone and it was snow. It was mm-hmm. about snow. And so from uh, October, November, December, January, uh, uh, February was just this fantastic uh, world opening up in white. And, <clears throat> and going to Mammoth, you know, and, and, and these Porsches and the parties and, you know, and, and uh, sleeping in these places to, to save money and the yeah. lift tickets and the girlfriends and all that. I mean, just the... You know, it made surfing look stupid. Really? Because <laughs> it was more sophisticated, more European. Sure. You know, you have Bogner outfits, you know, and what a world. Yeah. You know, and there's Dewey doing these tip rolls, you know, down the hill. Uh, you know, uh, Dora, uh, when I first started skiing, there was Dora, you know. Really? He had followed us up from, uh, from the L.A. He was a friend of the Eatons, you know. And so Jerry knew how to ski, so he goes up with Dora, you know. I'm like 13, something yeah. like that. And there's Dora dressed in black, you know, black uh, 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 canizels or something like that. Amazing world. Wow.